Welcome to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. My name is Andrew Pish, and I am so excited to have you here for our interview with one of our favorite artists' brains, Holly Laurent. Holly is just one of those people that makes you feel warm inside when you think about them. Her fingerprints are all over Storm Chaser. She's been our coach, our mentor, and one of our greatest influences. She brings joy, love, and poetry to an otherwise gray and sad and mirthless improv community. I personally love watching Holly play because her characters always feel passionately human and authentically full of emotion. Let me read just a few of Holly's many credits. Holly is the creator and host of the hit podcast Mega. She's the co-host and producer of the podcast It's a Wonderful Lie and she's a featured contributor on the nationally syndicated radio variety show Live From Here. She's an alumnus of the Second City Main Stage in Chicago. She toured with the Second City National Touring Company, and she was a featured performer at the TBS Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. Holly is also a founding member of the long-standing improv group The Reckoning, which you might hear us talk about a lot. You might have also seen her on Tacoma FD, Drunk History, Key and Peel, or The Late Late Show with James Corden. In this interview, we talk about how the pandemic has affected us all as live performers. We also talk about how to approach creating art that wrestles with challenging topics. And Holly shares how she intentionally deals with her fears as an artist. It was a beautiful interview that was honest and emotional. And as you'll hear, I think those qualities are part of what makes Holly such a brilliant storyteller. But that's enough for me, y'all. I hope you enjoy this wonderful, wonderful episode with the brilliant Holly Laurent. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. My gosh, oh. she's the most beautiful person in the whole world. I'm so excited to see. We you. love you too much. I love you too much. Damn, all of you have a true nice setup. I gotta get the holder on thing to my microphone. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love you. Do you know how beautiful you are? Question one. Do you know how wonderful you are? Question two. And do you know how much we love you? Question three. These are all such great things to even wrap my head around. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so happy to see all of you. And I can't wait. We're doing it. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Tasha, you little ding dong, you sending me the jet one. I was just like, fucking A. I went to Greg afterwards. I was like, I just listened to Jet and Storm Chaser talk about the craft for an hour and a half. And I am blown away like that was a brilliant conversation that was brilliant jet jet is yeah i've I've, i think i've listened to it a few times because i keep being like oh my gosh it's so important for me to remember this shit you're now the second guest that has talked about listening to jet and i i feel this i mean we can't take any credit for that jet's just brilliant and you know what holly we expect yours to be just as good yeah (laughs) No press. Nothing short of brilliant. I love you. What are you up to? What do you do? This is just Tasha, your friend, asking you. Like, how are you? 
How are how's your life? Um, you know, I want to ask the same of all of you. You know Tracy Letts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know Tracy Letts. I don't think I do actually. He is a Steppenwolf guy. He's done some TV and movies and stuff, but he's a playwright. He wrote August Osage County. And, oh, um, right. Greg was reading something off of Instagram to me the other day, and I got to find it for myself, but Greg was reading it. It was just a quote from Tracy Letts saying, I'm fucking devastated. I'm a shell. Like the pandemic, he's like, my wife keeps telling me, you know, the beauty of routine and dinner and dishes and time with your son. And like, yeah, I get it. I'm sorry. I'm fucking devastated and a shell of a person to have lost the thing that makes me feel alive, which is live theater and the connection and experience of artists, like just forging like a craft that is like molten lava in our hands. He's like, I'm fucking destroyed. And I'm just like, <sighs> I, I, um, I was walking sissy before this morning and I was like, just sort of taking stock. Have I, will I come out of this? Cause I'm half vaxxed at this point. And I think now that I've got that first jab, I'm like getting very, very antsy. And um, I was just kind of taking stock. Have I used this time? Has it just become about like a bottle of wine and TV all night? Have I used it? Have I disciplined myself for like continuing to like keep my tools sharp have I squandered this in a in a pity party or have I used it and and I, I really tried to be honest with myself and kind of do that sort of the, the inventory of your of your values and and how what you are <laughs> to, to quote Gandalf like what what am I doing with the time I've been given <laughs> I already gotta get this fucking out I don't know I think the answer is like I have squandered it and I've used it. I've wasted it and I've harnessed it. I've all of it, good days and bad. And most days it's just too early to tell. What about you? How are you all doing as humans? First of all, (laughs) thank you for answering that question honestly. I think so many people feel exactly the same way. Anyone who's like, oh yeah, it's been great is, I mean, maybe there are some people who just, thrive under this kind of an atmosphere and there's no judgment to them but I certainly haven't and I don't know many people who have I totally relate to this anxiety of we were literally just talking before you got on about how I'm kind of anxious about things opening up I can't wait and then I'm also like wait oh wait I, I I have this this fear like you said that did I just waste this like year that I had off it's very, it's very, very mixed emotions. I mean, it's incredibly relatable. I remember during the beginning of the pandemic, Paula sent out this email being like, a lot of people are moving online, they're moving their classes online, but I have decided to just pause, just to totally push pause, to stop and go inward. If I think about how I used my time, like, did I do anything? The answer is like, maybe not a ton. But as far as going inward, I feel like I've learned so much about myself, how I am in a crisis, what I think about my mortality, how I want to use my time. And like, I feel like I'm changing my life completely because of this time. So even if I did, I wasn't like productive, I'm, I've, I am changed. And that seems like a great use of time to me. Pishy, what about you? You're so quiet. 
I, I'm just trying to think. I, I, I have a hard time speaking about it briefly. I feel like I've had so many relationships end during this time period and so much transformation, not only personally, but just with family and friends. Certain friendships have grown stronger. Other friends I haven't spoken to this entire time. Every day I feel like I wake up and I'm paranoid that I'm wasting this time. I at the very early in the pandemic, I kind of flocked to some Buddhist teachers that were having video online courses. And I took several that really centered me at the very beginning to at least deal with those feelings because it was it was overwhelming at the beginning, like everyone experienced. And so I needed something. So that's been a great boon for me. Good. Yeah, that's cool. And you're in Texas. No, I'm out here in LA now. Oh, you are? Yeah. But you said in the jet one that you're in Texas. So in my mind, you're in Texas. Okay, well, find them in Texas, Holly. What do you want from me? Thank you. Sorry, what were you going to say, Trav? I was just, you know, I was just sort of thinking Whitney and I had, we sort of joke about, half joke about how her getting diagnosed with cancer two months into the pandemic in a weird way was a blessing because we spent very little time stressing about the economy or the pandemic or being unemployed or all of the other stresses that came with it because you know what we had something more important to stress about and in a weird way it i i, I don't obviously it's never nice to to get that news but it did help um consolidate our attention yeah big time <laughs> i remember whitney whitney mentioning too like well, at least I'm not going to get FOMO because nobody's doing anything. <laughs> so if I have to stay here and rest, like nobody's doing anything. So, haha. Yeah, know? exactly. Which I was like, good attitude. It's a scary time to not have an immune system, but also like if everyone else is already wearing masks and everything is closed down, I guess that works out actually. <laughs> um, how is she? How is she? And what have you been learning? Oh boy, we could fill a thousand podcasts on the things we've learning but she is doing very well Great. she's yeah we're you know tired but good yeah what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned in this <sighs> oh man you know someone just recently reached out to me on twitter their husband had just got diagnosed with cancer and i was trying to like share i was trying to be like oh here's all of the things you know and I, at the end of it all at the dump i was like oh also you know what i need to tell you is that like with everything else, our life is still full of love and joy and laughter and we're still happy. So in the midst of stress and trial and tribulation, like the important things don't change. I don't know if that's like a vague life lesson because there's a lot of technical medical things I've learned as well. But um, that's probably the most important thing of that. No matter what's happening, the important stuff stays the same. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. it's it's you and... um. Whitney have always had something I really, really admire because I think it's very rare actually when two people kind of dig each other that hard, like mutually. It's yeah. really beautiful and it's really cool. And it's so, it's, it's, it's a bright light, man. Yeah, it's we're, great. We're, we're pretty lucky for sure. Some of us are not lucky at all. Never <laughs> lucky, never once lucky, just trying to get up to bat and hit anything, but I'm batting zero for my entire life. 
I'll swing it garbage. I'll get out of the batter's box. Where do I get out of the fucking though? <laughs> Holly, I'm I just being with you right now is reminding me of something that I love about you is how deeply you feel everything. I think it makes you a beautiful artist and such a poet, but I'm sure that in times of stress like this, it's possibly extra difficult because you, I think you let everything in and you let everything out. Something I admire. First, do you feel like that's true? And if so, how do you feel like it affects your like artistic mission in life? Yeah, I feel everything so deeply. I'm highly sensitive and that's everything from like fabrics to light to sound to emotions, you know? Do you like the term empath? Oh, sure. Yeah. Cause it really, it really ex- explains it. It's why like going to a party can be so difficult for me just like, cause it's emotionally taxing. Cause I'm feeling the, I'm feeling everything that people are feeling the most, you know, like it's just being exposed to a lot of energy and taking on a lot of things. But yeah, I'm, I'm so empathic and I'm so sensitive that like, Jesus, it's, it's, it's tough for me to, you know, have boundaries and be intentional and try to be disciplined about my own emotional life and being responsible for it and not being too, um, allowing myself to be too cuckoo just because I'm feeling everything so deeply and so strongly then I'm also feeling whatever else people around me are feeling. So that's a lot, man. I'm so fascinated with your talk about emotions because it's something that everyone's dealing with. And I think still there's just such a, we're in a period where mental health is becoming less taboo. And so we're able to have these kinds of discussions. I'm interested to hear what kind of things you've been reading about that, because it definitely informs the process of, you know, our art that we create as well. I read a book called In an Unspoken Voice. And it talks about how trauma lives in the body and not even massive trauma, but just like held bad things. And it's like a very physical, muscular holding in the body. And when therapists, trained therapists can tap into it, it's like this huge release of these things that people are holding on to and can be blockages emotionally in a lot of different ways. And that blew my mind. And so hearing you talk about the same kind of stuff, I was like, what have you read? I'm sure you're familiar with Byron Katie and all of that. Like, I'm really curious about her. I have been attaching it a lot to the idea of reality. I think that our perception of our experience and the truth of reality very rarely intersect. But we believe that our perception of our experience is reality, is truth. So I'm learning kind of about, because I just don't think, I I think there's a trap in imagining that our emotions are true or our reality. It's definitely something that I'm experiencing, but like the way Byron Katie says, like just making friends with reality calms me down a little bit and remembering that my emotions are not necessarily truth and I can stop identifying with them and saying my emotions are me. I am jealous. I am lonely. I am. I'm just like, oh no, no, no. I am experiencing loneliness. I'm experiencing loss. I am not lost. And then also learning that my emotions are 
information. Feelings are meant to be felt, even though for decades I did everything I could to avoid ever feeling them, drink it away, busy it away, masturbate it away, and to be like, oh, okay, these are to be felt. This is information. What is it telling me? The information is telling me what I value. It is telling me that something I value has either been crossed, a boundary has been crossed, or, you know, so like, wow, this is all really um, important information. Something that I've been exploring lately is just the idea of reminding myself that I have an incredible imagination. And half the time that I'm about to get into a fight with my partner or I'm about to feel bad, it's a story that I'm telling myself, putting more emotion on the information and not actually reading the, just the information. This is such a random place to go, but all this is <laughs> all this is reminding me of a recent TikTok I saw from John Mayer. Oh wow. <laughs> great, great, great. And, you mean Andrew Pish? And he says Look at that face. Yeah, I know, right? That's why I followed it. I thought it was Pish's page, but it was turns out it was John Mayer. But he has a TikTok he put out that basically says there are the way things are and there are the way things seem. And a lot of times we get those mixed up. And he is like, get yourself a friend that will tell you the way things are. So you can call them and you can say, hey, man, these are the way things seem. How are they? And, you know, and that that friend can can, can tell you the truth. This is reminding me of. A rehearsal we had with you where I feel like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this, but it was something about making assumptions on stage, but not off stage and creating mischief on stage, but not off stage. So like, I remember coming off stage and being like, all right, mischief managed because it was like every impulse that you could have on stage would not make for a good life off stage, but is like what is interesting to watch. And I feel like that's something that I learned from you. We're talking about like in life, don't put meaning on things. Don't make it more important than it has to be. Don't take it personally. But in improv, if I take the last cup of coffee and Anatasha's character makes it mean that I hate her or whatever, she makes it important. That's probably a, a good recipe for an interesting and compelling scene but it's not a good recipe for life. Yeah, it's that thing we would talk about in rehearsal a lot of like how polite kills play in improv or kills potential. And I feel like so often I would hear myself as an improv teacher just being like, in life, please don't. On stage, please do. <laughs> you know, don't say that to your partner in life. Definitely say it on stage. In life, don't murder people please do it on stage, you know, like, let's fucking do it. Like, this is where we can explore these things, you know? But I think like, for me, I definitely have that like me disease. And that was really debilitative early on in improv because wanting to be liked by the audience was, I mean, it just diminished any p potential for, you know, flow or uh, discovery that could possibly be there. And it took me a long time to figure out, like, instead of trying to figure out what they want, like, what do I want? What do I like to feel? And I spent so long all day trying to be good that like on stage, I'm like, oh, it feels really good to be bad. Oh, I want to be so bad. I want to be naughty. I want to be mean. I want to be conniving, vindictive, evil. Like, oh, I'm so curious about all of that stuff. When I 
started being like, what do I want to explore rather than what does the audience want? Like, lo and behold, what did they want all along was for me to be conniving and evil and villainous and traitorous and scary and risky. And man, it's so fun to be bad. (laughs) Every actor knows like you want to be the villain, you know? And really you have to, and what we've talked about before is like you find the audience's threshold by like you know, fucking with their ideas and like what they're willing to like, oh, we like that. We don't like that. Oh, you don't like that? Why? Oh, let's play there for a while, you know? Do you have memory of having an audience turn against you because of, you know, pulling that rubber band a little too taut or anything like that when you're constantly pushing the edge of what you feel like they can handle? Oh, yeah. (sighs) One of my worst shows that ended with tears that still I feel such like cringy shoulder raising like shame. I don't know if I've ever told you this. This was some, I can't remember the name of the team at UCB Franklin a few years ago. They were like, will you come bring a picture and tell a funny, tell a story of that picture and they'll project the picture up on the screen, you know, on the stage. And then the improvisers will come play. So you'll be like, here's a picture of me on graduation day. And I had this written on my um, mortarboard or whatever. And and you tell this story or whatever. Well, I, my mom had made me a scrapbook years ago of like the pictures of my life. She made a scrapbook for each of her kids, like from your baby pictures all the way up to like your first boyfriend to your, you know, and, um, there's a picture in that scrapbook that she made for me where I, in 1992, went to Daytona beach with my friend Carrie Hunt. And I was so excited about going on a spring break. I come from a poor family. I'd never been on a plane. I'd never gone anywhere. We never did anything for spring break. For spring break, I like sat in our ranch house, like fighting with my brother in the basement and like stubbing my toes and shit, you know, and like eating market day pizzas and like wishing it would stop like sideways snowing in fucking March. And so I was so excited that I was like, I'm going on a spring break. And I was like, I'm going to get so tan. And this was when like getting tan was like, you know, so sexy, like, oh, so tan. I got so tan because my self-esteem was so low. And I was so excited that like everyone's going to see that I like went somewhere for spring break and I'm going to come back. I'm going to be so tan. So my friend Carrie Hunt and I, I went to a tanning bed. I'm going to die. I went to a tanning bed like for the whole week before. And then we get to Florida. We would lay out all day long with like oil on us. And I get pretty, I'm dark complected anyway, and I get pretty tan. And we would tan all day and then go to tanning beds at night. What? Y'all. Can I see this picture, please? (laughs) I'm only doing this because I trust you. Okay, great. (laughs) Wait. You can't even record this. Okay, we promise this picture will stay between the four of us. Hold on, I really will. I'll stop the Zoom recording. Stop the Zoom recording. Okay, stopped. (gasps) No, no, it's not real. (laughs) Oh my God. I was the tannest anyone has ever gotten. I won. The okay. whole world of tan. Oh my god! This okay, hold on. I'm starting the recording again, just so everyone knows. Thank you, Trent. Oh my it's god! the funniest, like most amazing world. Like that's like Guinness, Guinness World Book of Records 
tan. Like I told you I was the, I told you I was the most tan anyone's ever gotten. But when I showed you the picture, it still was stunning. It was still shocking. Plus you have to look that I had just gotten out of the shower. I had a white towel on my head. I had a white t-shirt on and white shorts. And of course I was wearing all white to look even more tan, but it's like the most tan anyone's ever gotten. Right. So anyway, I mean, can you imagine me coming back to high school and everyone in the halls being like, oh, my God. And I mean, this has been to you. Yeah. This is how low self-esteem. So I got asked to do this bring a funny photo thing at this fucking UCB show. And I was like, Greg, is this like too much or would this be fucking funny? Because like that's. That's funny, right? I mean, I'm definitely going to die in 15 minutes of massive melanomas. But like, it's funny, right? And Greg's like, I think it's hilarious. I took the picture. I went. It put. They put it up on the projector. And you know how different projectors are different. The projector made it even look darker. And the audience completely fucking viscerally, auditorily turned on me and were like, no. And they thought it was like, a blackface thing and like super inappropriate. And I started like, oh no, 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 no. The story is so, I I, I was like, cool. I, I, and I start pivoting and start pivoting and I'm like, try. And I was like, look, and I mean, they weren't, they weren't even listening. It didn't matter anything I said. They were just like, fuck this person is the most offensive person in the world. And, and my, and Greg's there like sitting in the front row. I'm humiliated in front of Greg. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I, the amazing thing was I didn't, I kind of told the story of being in high school and just wanting people to know I went somewhere because I'd never traveled before and to be like, I'm, I went somewhere, look how tan I am. And just to be like how out of control I would be that I would, you know, go to tanning, lay in the sun all day, go tanning beds all night. Like I thought there was some interesting like self-esteem stuff in there in terms of like, and how, when you're young, how dumb you are and how it's just like all or nothing. And all of that that I sort of wanted to explore and I kind of couldn't because they were like, no, fuck you. And it was the whole room and it was terrible. And I should have just walked off stage. I don't know what I should have done, but I, 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 st- I kind of told the high school thing, but then I pivoted. And in the moment I came, I was like, you know what? I come by my low self-esteem through many paths. And one is definitely my father. My father has excruciatingly low self-esteem. And I learned a lot of that from him. And I watch myself do a lot of things I see him do. And it's funny because now I never made this connection. But looking back, when I was a kid, like when my dad had a day off, he would like unfold that trifold, like lay down lawn chair thing that they had like in the 80s. And he would turn on WGN and he would grease himself up and he would lay in the sun all day in his tiny little like man shorts, short shorts. He also, my parents have told me that when they first got married, my dad had had terrible acne his whole life and he had never like found anything to help his acne except in the 60s or 70s. Like he bought this like, it almost looked like what, you know, a mechanic hangs in his garage that like aluminum, it almost looks like a bowl, like a mixing bowl that has a light inside of it or whatever. He bought like a sun lamp like that and he would put his face in front of this sun lamp And it would dry out his acne and like clear up his skin a little bit. And it cleared up his acne, but it kind of made his face always tan. And he was so ashamed of the acne and of the sun lamp and of being this imperfect creature with low self-esteem that when he married my mom, they got married when they were 20 years old. They were still in college. They were kids. 
And he was like, I got to keep up with the sunlamp thing, but I don't want Joycey to know that I'm doing the sunlamp. And so he was hiding it like in their marriage. And I don't know why she wasn't like, why is your face brown and your neck white or whatever, you know? But one day she found it. She was cleaning or something and she found it and she came to him and she was like, Bob, what's this? And my dad, like, almost like he was caught, you know, like cheating or looking at porno or something. Like he was like, (gasps) and he, he, it just arrested every cell in his body to be found out and to like, he was so full of shame that she was, he looked at her holding the sun lamp and he was completely silent. And they've both told this story. Like he got up and he ran out the door. And he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran and he just ran. He was like fucking Forrest Gump, just fucking running and being like, I don't know where I'm running. I can't like face. I can't. It's too much for me. I'm too sensitive. I'm too. And he it's funny because the story he tells us that he ran all the way into the woods and he got into the woods and he's sitting in the woods and he's like, what what have I done? What do I do? What do I do now? And he said it's one of two times in his life where he's audibly heard the voice of God, where God was like, I love you. Mm. (laughs) And like, you can go back. It's okay. Like, you are loved. (laughs) And he came back and like fessed up to my mom. And she, of course, was like, well, yeah, it all checks out. Your face is on his hand. Like, who cares? Like, (laughs) But I kind of, so I'm on stage at UCB and I pivot to that story and they didn't give a shit. I walk off stage and I'm behind the black curtains and I'm just like, oh no. I'm like, now I'm known in LA and in the improv community as this fucking like blackface, racist, like horribly insensitive, terrible person. And I just start weeping. I'm like crying so hard behind that black curtain, like silently. And I'm listening and the fucking, these fucking, improvisers, these fucking white dudes start doing like blackface scenes and about how ignorant and terrible and like, and I was like, I don't know how I recovered from this. And I was so humiliated and I was so ashamed. And Greg was there. There was like nothing redeeming from it, except that I went home that night and I crawl into bed. And normally this type of thing would, I would spin out, man. This would take me like days to emotionally recover and I would spin out. And I did this thing that's sort of rare for me. And I was laying in bed, Greg's fast asleep. And I was laying there and I was like, just trying to really honestly take stock. Did I, did I do anything wrong? Was I ignorant? Was I insensitive? Did I like, should I be ashamed? Honestly, I was really like, putting it back and forth. And it's interesting now, like thinking of my dad saying he audibly heard the voice of God. I feel like that night I audibly heard a voice, but I feel like it was my own that was like, no, you're not going to own this and take on shame and spin out all night and not sleep. No, that was brave because it was you sharing you and looking for connection and you reached out and your hand got smacked away and it doesn't feel good and it sucks, but you did something brave tonight and it didn't work. So sleep. 
And I slept. I couldn't believe it. I normally wouldn't have. <laughs> Thank you so wow. much for sharing that. Did I, you know that story, Tom? I have not heard this story. Oh, I did not. Terrible. And I'm, I'm so shocked that happened at UCB Franklin. And I was like, well, that means that it was like fairly recent, I'm assuming. Yeah. And and but now do you see why like I'm so still so like freaked out by it that I wouldn't even let you record the picture? <laughs> I have I have like three friends who have it in their phone, and I'm like, you have no idea how much I'm trusting you that I'll let you have this fucking picture. <laughs> you could destroy me. <laughs> Context is everything. And I feel like you can take something and make assumptions about it when you're like, no, I'm just trying to show you that like, look, look at what a dumb kid, like, just like tanning all this time. Like, you, you know, it's, it's not what you think that it is. There's so many times in comedy that I, you know, and actually, I think you're a good person to talk to about this. It's like, comedy is like I'm I'm often on the edge of my own comfortability trying to be brave and trying to push the limit and not necessarily about politics or or like race or gender sometimes those things but also just like my own com like comfortability in my body and like in my emotions and like all of those things are on the edge and when you are on the edge of that vulnerability and it's taken the wrong way or you take a step too far for the audience it is really it it can be you can spiral really hard and i'm just i don't know i'm trying to come up with my own philosophy for how i feel like i can still do the kind of risky comedy that interests me butting up against like a lot of cancel culture and also wanting to be more sensitive to oppressed groups, more sensitive to people who are in pain, because I do think comedy can be harmful. It can to to the right person hearing it or seeing it. So do you have any philosophy or anything that helps you as an artist to be able to have that unencumbered self-expression, but still keep in mind your audience and and their life and the things that they might be going through? Sorry, that's like a kind of a big question. Yeah, no, it's funny. Greg and I were just talking about this. I was like, what do you think about this? We were really digging into it. He and I both were in agreement that like, I believe it really comes down to one thing. It really comes down to target. Like you have to deeply be able to like unpack and deconstruct exactly what that target is and how and why, and always be playing with those dials of only punching up, not punching down. And, or if you punch down that it is with like a layered satire and a commentary that is defendable, defensible, you know, like, and because it's such a tricky time, it's such a tricky time. I look back at stuff that I said that I wrote in my second city shows that are archived, that can be looked up that like now you cannot say on stage. And when I was on stage there, we were looking at stuff that like, man, there's a great archive scene that was Colbert and Carell. Have you heard of it called Mia? I've seen it and it is very, very good, but I don't know that it would play anymore, which is crazy because it is so subtly brilliant, but out of context. Yeah. Out of context, it's it doesn't make sense anymore, but in context, it's pretty gorgeous. Yeah. It's for you two fellows. It's, do you know it? It's basically where Carell is like, 
oh, you know, hey, Pish, I'm bringing you home with me, bringing you back to my hometown. You're going to meet my family and everything. Oh, one thing you need to know is that when I'm in my hometown, I'm an old black woman. <laughs> and it's just that idea of um, like how that, that like, especially when you're a young adult, like striking out in the big city, you do have that feeling of there's like hometown me and then there's me now. You know, like I, I'm evolving. I'm a, I'm a transformation all the time, you know, and, and that's the target, but you can't do that scene now. And so even when I was at second city, it was like, we would hold the scene Mia in like the highest regard, but we're like, we can't do it. And then I was doing things on stage then that were like, we can totally do this. It's pushing the line. It's dancing on the threshold, but. It's totally defensible. And now I look back now and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> like I couldn't do it now. And and think about it. We, we, I, we were just talking about this because we were watching um, uh, the Woody Allen, me of uh, Pharaoh versus Allen or you know what I'm talking about. And um, like how we were groomed to be like, no, it's fine. Like with the Woody Allen stuff. And we look at it now and we hear the words coming out of the horse's mouth and our jaws drop. And we're like, oh, I am filled with so much shame that at the time I was okay with it. And now I hear it and I'm like, how were we ever okay with that? That was never okay. And then you think about what are the things we're doing right now that 20 years from now will be like, oh my God, what were we possibly? And it's such a like shifting kind of wet cement that feels like quicksand and it makes comedy that is supposed to be, you know, to get into flow, there's an element physiologically in the brain of like shutting off the prefrontal cortex and conscious self-monitoring and getting to a place of autobiographical self-expression and that failure is part of this and that we have to fail over and over and over. And then, you know, you bring in the cancel culture part of it and what was okay, what is okay, what will be okay. It becomes this mess that can just censor, your, you can turn on your own inner judgment and critic and censor, you know, to become so loud that you're like, well, how do we do comedy, especially improv? And how do we push the boundaries and take risks when that is the essence of what this is about? And how do we still be responsible and sensitive and smart and and still giving a shit all of that and i i think it is it can you can look at it a number of ways of like wow what a mess or it can be like wow every time you put your foot in a river it's a different river right and so we do our best we get in that fucking river of flow and we are intentional about target and punching, I think. I think Sarah Silverman's been talking about this lately in a very smart way. I watched some videos on her Instagram. She was talking about being like, I am a different person. I have changed. I've learned. I am sorry that I said that joke. And just kind of owning it, but also being like committed to growth. And I, she, I'm going to – I can't remember who it was. She quoted another comedian, so I'm sorry that I don't remember who it was. But they have a joke about like – Oh, look at this picture of you, LeBron James, when you were a kid. You're only 5'3". What's wrong with you? Like, and pointing at how short he is and then being like, well, he's it's 
been a long time. He's taller now. I think this is the same thing with your comedy and your art where you're like, look at you. Look how dumb you look. Look how offensive this was. And you're like, I am not the same person. Constantly changing. So I can apologize for that if it hurts somebody and be like committed to being more conscious about it now. I'm reading this book called The Sexual Politics of Meat, which I think I texted you about, Holly, because sometimes things come along in your life that just break your brain. And it has completely broken my brain. And one thing that she talks about with feminism is that she's like, people think I'm seeing something different in our society, but I'm not. I'm seeing the same thing differently. So we are seeing the same thing like the Woody Allen you look at it and you're like, I could see the same interview or the same movie of his. And at the time I was okay with it and now I'm not. And I, I feel like we're just seeing the same things like super differently and it's constantly changing. Yeah, it's it, that's exactly, exactly it. I just wanted to ask if you could explain the punching up and punching down if somebody hadn't heard that phrase before. Punching down would be described as like comedically when you go for the low-hanging fruit. It's Louis C.K. making fun of a trans kid. He's white, straight, rich, educated man, and he's taking a punch for a laugh at a vulnerable people group. It's punching down. Punching up is like, fucking fight the power, man. Like, the, the systems of power. Like, fucking, let's go after... Bezos and the Pope. And, you know, like, I'm not crazy about what uh, the Pope said last week and what that, like, communicated to LGBTQI kids, you know, like, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to bring that into my comedy. I'm going to take swings, intentional swings at the powerful, at the entrenched, at the systems that keep people in pain and not punch down on the people who are in pain, who are oppressed, who are underrepresented, who, who feel voiceless and who, who, you know, when, when in comedy, we have a voice, we have a platform, but I also, it's, it's funny, like with our podcast mega, which Anatasha did and Anatasha Oh, it might have been one of my most proud moments. She was so good. And here's the behind the scenes. I edit those episodes within an inch of their lives. I will take out two seconds here. I'll speed up the interview to 1.2 speed. I'll do all of these things to make it punch, 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 punch. Anytime somebody's doing too many uh, uh, ums and well, uh, uh, uh. Or sometimes you say something or you get like two sentences out before then you kind of find the funny thing and you say the funny thing or whatever. I take out those two sentences. I'm like, yeah, so it's just bam, 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 bam. I will edit those things within an inch of their lives. I've never in the history of Mega in 200 episodes or whatever, I've never not edited an episode until I fucking came to Anatasha's. And I, 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 I like dropped my headphones and walked into Greg and I gave Anatasha no credit for it. I was like, do you see what I do with these kids? (laughs) (laughs) I give you, I give you full credit. Yes. For, for, (laughs) for me being birthed from your improv loins. I know I know I say you came from my loins. I know you came from Jet's loins, but I was your gay uh stepmom. Yeah, no, you guys were my you're my mothers. It's totally cool, man. I'm so if I'm like if anybody anytime anyone has been like, 
oh yeah, I can kind of see, I can kind of see the reckonings rub, uh, rubbing, uh, having rubbed off on you. That's what she said. But I like, I'm always like, yeah, cool. That's a great compliment. I'm, they're my favorite. So I'm so good with it. So Anatasha came on Mega and it's a, it's an improvised satire of a fictional mega church and we play characters working at the church. And so it's fun for comedy because it's such a specific world with such, such specific language and such a specific point of view. This would be a community of people and a belief system and a use of language and all of that that would be really easy to punch down on, even though you can kind of think of them that they are kind of a powerful institution as well. But personally, the people who go to these churches are human beings who are in pain and who are full of as much beauty and cruelty as any of us, right? And so these are human beings. And so the reason I bring it up in terms of the punching down um, conversation that we're having is that this would be, I think, a target that would, the target of the joke would be very easy to punch down on. But I can't take credit for the reason we don't punch down on those people and their points of view in that project. I can't take credit for it because it's just the tradition that we come from, the Chicago tradition that I think we all, the Reckoning and Jet and me for sure, attempted to instill in you and I think did successfully, which is not only being cognizant of the target of the joke and being smart and intentional and taking great risks and uh, failing and failing and failing and failing some more, but the tradition that we come from is essentially the improv waters that we drank basically taught us that if you have something to say about a specific point of view or a power system or whatever, the most effective way to make your point is to be that person or to be that point of view or that, that place or that thing to the best of your ability, to the top of your intelligence, become them so that you can humanize them, so you can explore and discover the humanity inside of that. So it's not just a belief system that you're making fun of, but it's a human that you're embodying and exploring and finding the humanity inside of it. And so it's funny because I am not a believer and I have a lot of people reach out to me from mega and they assume that I'm a believer because they feel like we're doing such loving send-ups of these characters that, that we must, you know, be believers the internet thinks I'm a Christian too. Cause I'm always like doing exegetical research on like source material in the Bible and stuff just for like having, you know, stuff to riff on as my character. Um, so I'm like, ah, Greg, the internet thinks I'm a Christian, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is that that's part of that punching, um, uh, punching up or punching down thing. Nobody wants to be lectured. As soon as you feel like you're being talked to, you sort of shut down and start like forming your own opinion, you know? And so that's why comedy can be such a great Trojan horse that we slip into the city, that we slip into the mind. Just in the same way Tom Hanks was a Trumper on Black Jeopardy on SNL and 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 showed like that he humanized this Trump supporter, MAGA hat wearing person and showed like that there was a genuine fear of otherness with, with Keenan, you know, and like, and, and humanized it rather than like, look at these fucking idiots, you know? It's like the more that you can humanize it, the longer a lifespan that it can have. Because I think there's some comedy that has a very short lifespan because it's poking at a specific 
power structure that won't always exist because I think things like change or morph to become different over time. But the humanity part of it is the thing that I think can stick. So if you have a lot of that, I think the comedy lasts can last longer and you could watch it in 50 years and be like, ah, it's still really funny. And it's powerful. We like to look at each other. Like if it came between looking at people or looking at things, we always will look at people. We're always like, oh. We're looking at people. We're pulling up Apple TV every night to be like, oh, I'm going to look at a bunch of people. <laughs> I'm going to look at these people. They're speaking French. Okay. I'm going to look at these people. They're in a fight. I'm going to look at these people. We love looking at people. <laughs> so was this kind of the genesis of the of Mega? Could you say it was that brilliant from the get-go or did you discover that as you went along? I think we just instinctively did it without knowing because that's our that's our improv DNA, to be totally honest. But the genesis of it was honestly like... I went into it kind of kicking and screaming. I wanted to do a podcast. I was talking to Jet about it. I had a list of all these things and they were all improv and comedy related. I wanted to do all these different things. And I was pitching it to this uh, network and um, I'm sitting at this meeting with all these dudes and I'm like pitching all my favorite ideas first. And I just was watching them like look at their watches and yawn and be like, snooze, conk, shoe. And I was like, I am biffing this, man. And Greg had told me a million times, Greg was like, you got to do something about a megachurch. You worked at a megachurch. You know that you, you always joke that you're bilingual. You speak English and you speak evangelical. Like use that language. Specificity in comedy is like comedy gold. Like you have the world. You have the big colorful backdrop. You have the language. Now like play inside of it and find the dials and say what you want to say and everything. And I was always like, no, in the same way I now have like such shame about my tan picture. I have like weird shame attached to like, why was I working at a mega church? I didn't even believe at the time I had no, I was no longer a person of faith and I'm working at a mega church and I was only doing it because I was like feeling lost and adrift and young and small in a big city. And all I wanted to do was feed my improv habit at night. And I had it as a day job and I felt very closeted from it. And I, it still haunts me in certain ways. And I was like, Greg, I don't want to do anything about mega church culture. I I, I feel like I lost so many years to that place, to that thinking, to that world. And I don't want to look at it anymore. I don't even want to play with it. I don't want to do anything with it. I want to do anything but that. And so cut to, I'm sitting in tanking in this meeting and these guys are like, Z falling asleep. And I'm like, or I have this thing about a mega church where it's an improvised satire of fictional mega church where we play characters like using the language. I speak evangelical and I speak English. And so I like joke around, say I'm, I'm bilingual and blah, blah, blah. And all of them sat up in their chairs and they were like, bam, that's it. And they were like, go away, write the show, Bible, come back and we'll produce it. Let's go. And I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and... And so I spent way too long overthinking it. I'm like looking at all these mega church names. What do I name the church? What do I call all the different ministries? Because like the ministries all have to be this like the one that I worked at, like the high school ministry was called Student Impact. The like junior high ministry was called like um, Sun City and the the children's ministry was called Promised Land. And then there was like a singles group that was called this and that and all this stuff. And so I was like. And the church I worked at was called Willow Creek. And there are churches called Saddleback and Mars Hill and, you know, all these different. And I was like, what do I call it? What do I call it? And I was like redoing all this research online. And then I was like, what if I just called it Twin Hills? Because that's like boobies. And I love boobies. Everyone loves boobies. And if I ever forget what the name of the church is, I'll be like, boobs. Oh, Twin Hills. And so we just named it Twin Hills Community Church. And then I was like, oh, what do I name the high school ministry? 
Oh, climax. Because what's it like to be a teenager? Oh, you know, just like, ah, you know. And so Greg's the youth pastor who's always like talking about like his kids in climax. Well, when my kids come to climax, I do TikTok sermons for them and stuff. And then, of course, like we started the podcast and I I wasn't as editorial in the beginning. I've really learned a lot. I think it's like starting to catch its stride. Man, it's really hard to get uh, podcast listeners because by the time we got in, the market was so saturated, blah, 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 blah. But on a personal note and on a community note, it's been a really interesting thing because I feel like being able to, in the way that I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to think about that anymore. Honestly, now turning it into this project comedically has been completely therapeutic. It has helped me laugh about this stuff. It has helped me humanize these human beings and, and it's crazy because we were shooting for a comedy audience and what we hit was equally a Christian church going evangelical audience and an ex evangelical, like, so total opposite ends of the spectrum. And both of them are reaching out and all the ex evangelicals, which I didn't even know that was a term that had been coined, but like, there's a huge ex evangelical community and they're all reaching out being like, holy shit, this is really therapeutic. Thank you so much. And then all of these believers and Christians are reaching out and being like, holy shit, you totally get it. This is so therapeutic. This is so great. I'm speaking at a church in May. (laughs) And I'm like, do you, do you think it's okay that I'm like, can I say like, I am not a believer. I feel like I have to be honest about that. Like, cause I was like closeted for so long in terms of like living in the Christian world and not being a believer and being like, I don't know. Romans says that God gives faith as he sees fit. He didn't give me any, I got zero. I don't believe any of it. You know, anyway, there's this church in Portland. That's like, no, we like want to, they want me to come on and talk about how my character on the podcast, Hallie is like, almost like toxically positive because the joy of the Lord is our strength and we have to be blessed and positive and happy. And he was like, will you come on and talk about like how the like strange expectation that we should feel good and be okay and be at peace and have joy and love and the fruits of the spirit all the time can really like be damaging psychologically to believers. And I was like, yeah, wow, <laughs> I'm like, that's cool. So it is kind of, it has kind of brought me back to I'd say before I had the podcast, I was very much like, no, I don't like that. I find it, it hurts people. It's not okay to like, I've come back around and been like, what are the redeeming and beautiful and lovely things in the history of this thing? And it's been really interesting, man. (laughs) Well, anyone listening to this podcast hasn't listened to your podcast that they should because it's hilarious. (laughs) It's great. You've had some amazingly talented people come on the show, like Anatasha, like Maya Rudolph, like, I mean, the the name dropping could go on forever because the people on that show are amazing. It's really, really fun. Oh, uh, thanks, man. It was also fun to do. You and Greg are so, I was talking to Lauren Robertson about this because like the night before she was like, I'm, I'm a little nervous, like, uh, and I was like, they make you feel like a million bucks and they take care of you a hundred percent. You guys are like really great hosts and great improvisers in that way. It was a like pleasure to play with you in that way. It was really lovely. Aww. It was really fun to have you. It, it has saved my ass in pandemic because it is just the one place I get to itch that improv scratch. So it saved my ass. And and now I've, I'm like learning a lot too about like podcasting. Do you have any... Do you have any 
interest or desire or plans to spin Mega into like a show. I feel like there's a lot there with the characters you've developed and the the premise is seems really strong. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's come up. It's come up and we've pursued it tentatively in like small ways, but like so far it's going to need the right champion. It's going to need like a person who actually understands the vision. Like we've thought about it in many ways, kind of to be like an office workplace type of show that is like kind of small and contained like the office where it's these characters, you know, it, the, the backdrop is corporate America, but the show is about like the, the humor between the characters and their relationships and their points of view and the way they bump up against each other. That's really the way we've always seen it as like a really like manageable, contained sort of thing. Again, just like the podcast, it's not about punching, punching down on religion or people of faith. It's about exploring the points of view and the personalities and the relationships of people bumping up. The, the, the mega church world is just the colorful backdrop. But man, oh man, do Hollywood types get really, really fucking cagey around stuff having to do with church and religion. And we have just had time and time again, like any momentum that we get in that direction, they they just don't, they don't get it. So it's just going to take the right person. And so far we haven't found that. I don't know if that'll be studio or production company or showrunner or who it'll be, but like, we're definitely open because it, it just seems like a no brainer. Like this could be a really great comedy. I, ho- I hope it happens. I really do. In which case, I'm never getting away from this church stuff that I was <laughs> wanted to have like a million miles away from me. But Okay, I want to pivot a little bit because I was looking back over some of my rehearsal notes from many moons ago with you. And I realized that so many mantras I've had over the years that I like say to myself over and over and over again before I get on stage are just literal words from your mouth or things that like poems you introduced me to, you know? So I'm like, so just so many things that are stuck in my brain forever come from you. If any of these you're like, I don't fucking remember what the fuck I was talking about. Feel free to push past. But is it okay if I ask you about a couple things? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember showing us that video about Ma? Yeah. And how to bring that into your improv. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Ma meaning like space, the silence, the room between me clapping. It's that space that allows for the impact for you to differentiate that I'm clapping. Right. And it's the, the patience in improv is really hard for a lot of players. Like I get really frustrated sometimes playing in groups because they won't let anything breathe or develop or get its legs before it's like tagged out and moved on from. And I think like scenically, we're always like, you know, jumping to the next thing. And we consider it like we're filling dead air rather than ma, you know, like Miyazaki said that two people sitting quietly on a bench is as interesting to look at as two people talking to each other on a bench, you know? I think patience as active curiosity is a high value to me in improv, and I would love to be a missionary for for that more patient play. Not necessarily meaning slow, meaning space, meaning shut the hell up once in a while so that you can be affected by what actually just sit in what just happened. Just let it feel like, let it sink all the way down into your bones. Take the time to be uncomfortable so that you can get to making discoveries on stage. 
Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love you. That's something I think about a lot. We've been doing episodes of the podcast that we call Game Tape, where we like watch back our show and then we like break it down. And something that's come up for me a lot, that need to fill space versus living in tension and being like, oh, it's not only is it okay, it's more juicy than me talking and talking and talking and talking. Yeah. Cool, man. Oh, thank you. Okay, there's an, here's another mantra. Be the flame, not the moth. Do you remember saying that to us? Oh, yeah. I do love that phrase. And I've noticed that with people. Do you notice this? There are certain people, and maybe you're not even conscious of it at first, but if you think about it, there are certain people that just turn you into a moth. You're just like, when you come around them, you're like, what are they noticing? What do they need? What do I do? What do I, and it's like, they just have their flame, you know? And I've noticed that I do not like that dynamic. I do not like being a moth. I just don't. And I don't know, for better or for worse, I, I I have noticed that of like, okay, in what ways can I just, I think it go, there is a little bit of ma in that, Tosh, be still. It's almost, gosh, that's a verse from the Bible, be still and know that I am God. Like, be still, like, it, it kind of is that thing sometimes of like, how about if you shut the fuck up? It's also meditation, you know, like, slow down calm down, get over yourself. Every time I do psychedelics, they tell me the same thing. They were, they are like, you are a force and it is time you begin behaving that way. And I'm always like, huh, me? I'm a, I'm a ding dong. <laughs> and um, so I, I think that we can do that on stage. You feel when you're being a moth on stage, when you're just like flitting around, what do they want? Who, what, what is my scene partner tr trying to do? I'll do whatever I am at your whim. Um, I think it's like centering yourself, like with TM, with Transcendental Meditation, like the thought is that the water at the surface of the ocean is like choppy and bang, boom, you know, there can be like a massive storm. But it, the deeper down you go, it gets very, very quiet and still. And that that's what's happening with us, you know? And so I think the more you play, if you can get to where no matter what's happening on stage, however choppy those those uh, waters are in your scenes, in your piece, in the moment with your partner, whatever, like if you can still know that like deep down you have that, like you are a flame, you can be patient. You can listen. You can steady yourself. Like sometimes when I notice that I'm playing with somebody who is very like manic, I will actually like widen the base of my stance with my feet and legs just to even create like a grounding, like flame, ma, stillness, you know, that kind of just to try to bring some balance with that, you know? Oh. I love that. You are a force. The psychedelics are correct. We were talking <laughs> about that before you got on. Huh, Trav? We were like, does Holly know how magical she is? Like, do you? does it come naturally? Do you know that you are a flame, that people are so... 
I feel like everyone's in love with you. Maybe I'm just in love with you, but I just feel like you are so you're so charismatic and and you pull people. I cannot tell you how good it feels to hear that and how much I will just like put that in my pocket for a, a day of rainy self-loathing. <sighs> I I don't. I there are times where I can give myself credit and know that I have good qualities and you know the things that we can do, higher self, blah blah blah. I think I can give myself credit for like some ways in which I'm good. And sometimes again, like speaking of like flames and moths, like there are times where in the same way that I don't like being around someone who is so flamey that I just automatically like burst into a moth. There are other people that when I'm around them, like when I witness them being a moth that I sense my own flame. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Like some people make me realize my own like strong flame more. But man, I really, really, I really struggle. Like I am still very much like deconstructing shame, constantly interfacing with the fear program that runs silently in the background. You know, I have a bunch of windows open on my laptop up here in my brain box. There is a fear program that that runs pretty silently that I have to get really intentional about recognizing and dealing with. And, and I'm so impressionable because I am so highly sensitive and I am so deeply emotional. And like I watch Nomadland and I'm basically like, I'm going to be homeless forever and everyone will abandon me and I will have nothing. Like that's what I experience when I watch that. I'm like so impressionable. I'm like, oh. It's just all over the map, man. To be honest, there are days where I'm like, hey, you should love me. I'm really lovable. And then there are some days where I'm like, why would anyone like be in my presence? You know, but that's a but that's a that's a, a journey. I really I, I really struggle. Some of those programs that run quietly in the laptop of my mind are are they're they're proving to be quite um, quite, uh, well-designed programs that tend to run on their own. And I'm really working on dismantling them though. It's interesting that you use the word magic because I love magic. And I think the only way I've ever experienced magic is in those moments of improv, those moments where we are all in flow and where we just get as surprised as the audience is and we don't know where this is going and it has overwhelmed us. To me, that's magic. And that's, um, I think, uh, my greatest love is those moments, connection and experience, connection and experience. It's part of why I feel like sh I'm shriveling into a husk in, in pandemic because like, Everything that recharges my batteries is like connections and experiences. And like for me, variety is the spice of life and routine is the sugar of death. And like routine just drains all the energy out of my batteries. And so there have been times where I'm just like, I'll walk into the room with Craig and I'll be like, I'm going to start crying right now and I'm just going to cry really hard and I don't even know why. And I'm okay. But my like female animal body like needs to convulse for a while to release something. And he'll be like, okay. <laughs> and I'll be like, I'm, I'm actually not even in pain. I just, I'm okay. Okay. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he's gotten used to it. I, I, I don't know for better or for worse. I don't know if you believe in the Enneagram. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I'm a seven on there. I'm the enthusiast and 
boy, oh boy, do I find that to be the case. I mean, I am the enthusiast. It's like, it's really hard. And it's probably why I don't have children is because I am one. I mean, I don't know how to feed myself. How am I going to fucking feed a goddamn kid? And I mean, the enthusiast, I'm like, ooh, ooh. It's, I think it's also why I'm a bad cook. I'm like, ooh, garlic is good. So more garlic. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. I'm like, ooh, one glass of wine made me feel good. <laughs> I'm gonna, what, what would happen if I do two bottles of wine? Ooh, more pizza. Another episode. Stay up two more hours. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, and so then so much like, I think like, you know, shame gets attached to some of that. But with downshifting over and over and over again during pandemic and finding new levels of quiet and like calm and like downshifting more and more and kind of what you were saying earlier, the things that you've learned about your priorities and your highest values. And like you were saying, Travis, of like, we've been through this very scary illness. You are currently in this illness with your wife and there's so much like fear and unknown, but it, it shows you what you're made of. And it tells you what your priorities are. I just looked up who the type seven Enneagram. Yeah. I thought what was notable was a couple of other people who were also type sevens. What? The Dalai Lama and Ram Das. Whoa. And Timothy Leary. Whoa. And Joe Biden. What? Okay. I love that you said that because I am like. It it makes okay, so much wow. sense that Holly is don't don't take this the wrong way, Holly. Don't don't take all the pressure that would come with this sentence, but it's sort of I feel <laughs> like it's true. You are like the Dalai Lama of improv. You have this <laughs> super light energy, and I feel like you're encouraging to everyone, and people, you know, are drawn to you for this. I, I before we got on, I'm like, I'm just excited to spend an hour and a half in the presence of Holly because you're this light. So oh. I know the way you're going to take that is it is comes with a lot of pressure. So please don't just take it as okay, a, as okay, a compliment okay. that it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you are a, a bright light beacon in this world. Uh, yeah, you're you're a leader even when you don't mean to take that role on. I feel like people just look to you, and so that mantra of being the flame and not the moth. I think you're the perfect person to say it, because I know I'm not the only person who feels that way about you. I can. Name a hundred people off my head, which is crazy. Uh, y'all, well, God bless. I did not know that pitch. That is so, so interesting. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's another thing. Because of that shame program that runs so quietly in the background all the time, oftentimes I, I will feel bad about myself for, for the things like, like, I am such a night owl. And I feel bad about that because I feel like you're supposed to be up at six, working out, being like Pish, eating a bag of spinach. I do that now. I did that for lunch and I literally thought of him. <laughs> <laughs> I think of Pish every time I eat spinach. And I feel bad about that because I'm like, oh, I always imagine that the other thing is the better one. You know, the way that everybody else does it is better and I'm bad. And one of the things like as I've been downshifting during um, pandemic and like being more reflective and stuff is like, oh, I have been designed this way for the tribe. The tribe needs people who are alert at night. The tribe needs people who are alert in the morning. It's all valuable as it relates to the whole. It's funny when you asked me to do this, Anatasha, I was like, I want to do it so bad because I love them and I want to talk about the thing that we all collectively love so much and how much we love each other and we get to be together. But I honestly, my fear is that 
because I'm feeling like such an artistic husk right now that I, I, that it won't be a good talk, you know, because I'm just like languishing, you know, I was walking the dog this morning and I was thinking, I was anticipating this conversation and I was trying to think like, you know, what, what is there? And, and I did hear this voice of my own intuition or whatever you want to call it really loud and clear. It's okay to tell them that you have come to a point of knowing nothing. <laughs> like, I don't know anything anymore. And that might be the best place to be. Because another mantra I used to do for a long time that I borrowed from Barack Obama, which was, I know what I'm doing and I'm fearless, served me until the day that I realized I have no idea what the hell I'm doing and I'm full of fear. And speaking of Ram Dass, I feel like the more the, the more I learn, the more I realize, like, I know nothing. I listened to Jet talk about improv, and I'm like, I should never speak about improv compared <laughs> to her. You know what I mean? You know that, that she's your she's your improv wife, though, which means that you do know all of that. You're mirrors of each other. Also, I just want to say really quick, when I left my religion and had, like, a huge upheaval of my life uh, up to that point as I knew it, Jet told me to go get pizza with you, and I did. And you gave me a piece of advice that I want to give you now, which is that it's okay if you don't know anything and you have all the time in the world. And those two things made me be like, oh, it's okay. Like, because I was like suddenly like, I don't know anything. I feel like everything I knew, I don't know anything anymore. And you were like, that's okay. How fun yeah. to be like, whoa, I don't know what I think. It's a fun place to be in this beginner's mind. And it feel like I had all the time in the world to figure it out or not. Mm. And I think we're all feeling that again right now. I don't know anything. And like, that's okay. <laughs> you got me. Oh, you got me. <sighs> oh, God. I, lo <sighs> I really love you a lot. I can speak for all of us when I say that. I really love you a lot. I think the power of your feeling reminded me of the beauty of the thing that we're doing here. And when we would show up for an improv rehearsal and you would inevitably cry because the breeze was a little strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would remember that I was like, this isn't just this thing where we get up on stage or nah, rah, 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 and making people laugh and you know it's it was this thing this way to connect to our humanity in a way that I felt like I got closer to myself and what I wanted to express because I was able to get in touch with my body and my emotions more because you felt that you made that feel safe in the improv community as opposed to making it this very heady endeavor. Mm. Thank you for being so open with your emotions with people because people like me need that mm. a lot. Thank you for being so trustworthy with my vulnerability. <laughs> it's funny. I think I've lost a lot of brain energy to my improv bullies silently and without knowing dictating how I express some input like I'll run it through the like what would so-and-so say if they heard me teaching this they'd make fun of me or whatever you know 
So can I, just to really, really be a straight up, this is so Holly. Are you going to read a poem? Because I want can you to I? know. I want yes. you to know that I literally have written on my notebook right here. I was like, it's only appropriate in the end of a Storm Chaser rehearsal if Holly reads a poem. So I was like, yeah, ask her to read a poem. And here okay. we are. I didn't even have okay. to fucking ask. Okay. Okay. Well, something that Pish just said made me be like, oh. This is my favorite poem that I've found like all month long. And it it haunts me in the best way. And it's exactly what we're talking about. This is called Do Not Be Ashamed by Wendell Berry. Have you ever heard of this poem? Buckle up. You will be walking some night in the comfortable dark of your yard. And suddenly a great light will shine round about you. And behind you will be a wall you never saw before. It will be clear to you suddenly that you were about to escape and that you are guilty. You misread the complex instructions. You are not a member. You lost your card or never had one. And you will know that they have been there all along, their eyes on your letters and books their hands in your pockets, their ears wired to your bed. Though you have done nothing shameful, they will want you to be ashamed. They will want you to kneel and weep and say you should have been like them. And once you say you are ashamed, reading the page they hold out to you, then such light as you have made in your history will leave you. They will no longer need to pursue you. You will pursue them, begging forgiveness. They will not forgive you. There is no power against them. It is only candor that is aloof from them. Only an inward clarity, unashamed, that they cannot reach. Be ready. When their light has picked you out and their questions are asked, say to them, I am not ashamed. A sure horizon will come around you. The heron will begin his evening flight from the hilltop. I mean, to be completely honest, I was like, this is going to be a shitty poem. But then I started to tear up halfway through. <laughs> so stupid. I oh, I love that. Will you text that to me? Done. I'll text it to all three of you right yes, now. Yes, please. Please. Isn't that bananas? It's I wild. have so much shame in my life that I I anytime I think I'm done with it, it rears its ugly head. Maybe. And you are actually somebody you've helped me work through a lot of that shame. Shame about like my body, especially shame about, you know, just so many things. And uh, that was really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Just a little titillating fun fact, fellas. Tasha and I have been working so much on our like shame and repression that we've been sending each other titty pics of ourselves. <laughs> How do we get on this text chain? I was, I know, I was like, uh, I was in a text chain. I was in a text chain with Jet and Holly and I was remembering, okay, so they both sent a titty pic, and then I was remembering that time at Holly's house where somebody, I don't know who it was, was like, 
I dare you to eat that dog treat. And then we all ate a dog treat because we were too like, didn't want to be the person who didn't eat oh. it. And I was like, it's the same thing. I was like, if I don't send one, then uh, no, I'm, I'm not a storm chaser. <laughs> it was because you sent us a picture of your cleavage and we were both like, Fuck yourself sky high. If you're sending us a thing, don't give us the cleavage. That's what Show I'm us those tits. About. I was like, or get I was like out. what have I done? I started a bit. I can't and I if I can't finish you it, who am I? Right into that, you dumb storm chaser. You chased that fucking storm. You forced our own hand to force your tits. Yeah. I wanna thank God for putting me in that text thread. <laughs> it's also that's such trust. Like, I mean the fact that I'm trusting you with a teddy pic of me, oh, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this, Holly. You're amazing. Yeah. I love all of you. Do not be ashamed. There you have it, folks. You are now officially, like us, a part of the Holly Laurent fan club. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her on Instagram at Holly Laurent and on Twitter at Laurent Holly. And make sure to check out her podcast, Mega, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever you kids listen to podcasts on nowadays. And also on Instagram at MegaThePodcast. Want to stop talking about improv and start watching it again? Storm Chasers do an improv live on Facebook.com backslash Storm Chaser Improv. For showtimes and other goodies, connect with us on Instagram at Storm Chaser Improv. And one last thing. If you've enjoyed this show, could you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps us convince those guests that don't respond to us sitting outside their window waiting for the moment that they'll look outside and realize how much we really, really care about them and just and just respect them, you know, like, like a normal human being does. Anyways, thanks so much for listening today. We really appreciate it. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show.